So I was digging through an old crate tonight when I stumbled upon my September 1988 candidacy speech in my run for student class government at Mayopac High School. Here it is. My name is Jeff Perlman, and I deserve to be your class of 1990 representative. Many people have approached me and asked, Jeff, why do you keep running for class office? To these people, I reply, there comes a time when every man must put his foot down and state the facts. I'm tired of the fact that we juniors have minimal parking places while undeserving seniors hog up the school grounds. And I'm tired of having a pair of librarians who make it a hobby of kicking people out of the library for foolish reasons. I'm embarrassed of running on a beat-up, dog-crap-infested track which has not been repaired in 20 years. And I was damn tired waiting in a great adventure parking lot for over three hours on a school trip that had been successful in the past, yet was messed up last year. Most of all, I'm sick and tired of having the same old, incompetent underachievers serving as our representatives. And as a class of 1990, one of the most memorable classes in Mayopac history, we must work to stop the injustices which have stood in the way of having a truly awesome school year. And while I could be up here making empty promises of installing a beer machine in the cafeteria or attempting to bribe you for your votes, I have too much pride and not enough money. But since you have the opportunity to vote for four representatives, make one of those choices for Jeff Perlman. Because after running in the past, I deserve to win this time. Amazingly, I lost. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Michael C. Bender, the Wall Street Journal senior White House reporter and author of the outstanding new book, Frankly, We Did Win This Election, the inside story of how Donald Trump lost. This is episode number 221. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks. You're losing your hair. All right. Well, Mike, thanks for doing this. I am. Uh, I'm sitting in my closet and I was thinking your book has done really well. You've done a shitload of interviews. You've been on big mainstream uh, TV shows, you know, programs of different sorts. Have you had anyone yet interview you from their closet? No, I'm really impressed. I think what I'm most impressed by is you have door handles inside your closet. <laughs> we don't mess around here. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're very proud. Um, <laughs> I usually don't make this a sort of this is your life kind of podcast, but I am a little fascinated. Um, You go to Ohio State. Mm -hmm. Did you know upon arriving at Ohio State that journalism was your thing? Like, were you a high school? No, absolutely not. Like, 100 percent not. I mean, it was actually like a quite a cause of concern that I didn't fully appreciate or understand for my parents that I went to school not really sure what I wanted or what I wanted to do. And um and they were kind of, my dad was, my dad's an accountant. Um, my uncles and a lot of my aunts are business people, accountants, finance people. I didn't really want to do that. And um, wasn't sure what the other kind of options really were. Uh, I had gone to a Jesuit um, college prep high school. Um, like really, I mean, I think we had a newspaper, but I mean, we definitely had a yearbook. Mm-hmm. Um, talking to like friends years later, like, I, they say we had a newspaper. I have no memory of it. Like it never occurred. Like they didn't really like push arts and, and that sort of thing, like creative, right. I mean, there were options available, right. But like, it wasn't really the thrust of the school or a big um, uh, goal for it. So like, I, I, I hadn't really ever thought about these other things as careers or um, I'd always liked writing, um, reading. 
And it was a journalism 101 class. I mean, to get to your question is, is that I took as a, like an elective that sounded interesting and I took it. And I mean, it was, you know, the journal, it was a 101 elective at Ohio state and the, so it was a huge lecture hall with hundreds of kids. Like it wasn't like this, but even that kind of broad strokes of journalism, the basics, you know, history and broad strokes of journalism kind of clicked, just clicked with me. And at that point I was a U.S. history major. Um, the college paper, um, it's a five-day week paper at Ohio State, but it's a journalism class. It's like a it's part of the journalism program is, so I kind of had to work my way into that from the outside in. Um, but you know, and that kind of went from there. Uh, if you want to know more, I'm happy to go go down that road. Well, what, like, what was it? What was it about it that did it for you? Like, why was it? What what sparked your your thing? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it was kind of like a bunch of a bunch of things. One is some of my favorite classes growing up, and you know. Um, Elementary, middle school, and high school were social studies, history classes, and I liked the stories. I liked the, like the, the stories about the people um, and what, you know, how they got things done, and and how they like what their relationships were, and sort of who they were in the in, in the time that they lived, and and like you know, um, uh, leverage or 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 um, you know, like what what it was about them and in their era that made them whatever famous or, or why they were in like their place in the history books and that kind of thing, um, which journalism kind of felt a little bit, you know, uh, right. Like that kind of like front row to history, no matter what you're doing, it's sort of, you know, like the idea, the big broad idea that you're sort of recording history in the moment, the paper of record type thing. Um, I always liked writing. I always kept journals and that sort of thing. And um, this was an opportunity to do that and try that. Um, and I had grown up in Cleveland. I, uh, I was, and I was looking for kind of somewhere else to go. I wanted to, I, I love Cleveland. I love my family. It's um, for a long time. I tried to get back um, to Cleveland, but um, I wanted a different experience. I wanted to see like other parts of the country and live in other parts of the country. And at the time I'm in college in the late nineties, even then there was like a newspaper in every town. Some towns had two newspapers. Yeah, crazy. Um, yeah. And it isn't exactly like, uh, you know, even then it was fraught and, you know, the old timers at these newspapers were telling me no to go into, you know, anything else basically. Um, but, you know, uh, so it kind of went from there. My first job was in grand, you know, I did that pretty literally and went, you know, could go anywhere. So it kind of went nowhere. Um, ended up in Grand Junction, Colorado, a small community newspaper in Western Colorado, but it was a different dynamic from Cleveland. Everyone was moving out of Cleveland this was the Rocky Mountain West, um, a, a, a town, a county people were moving to, and they were dealing with issues, um, growth issues, and how to handle all the newcomers and preserve what they had and, instead of Cleveland, which was trying to figure out how to, you know, the opposite. Like, they were trying to get, figure out how to keep people. But, um, so, uh, it was hard. I mean, it was, it was hard, too. Like, I was always jealous of the people who had worked at the college newspaper or at the high school newspaper or some of, in some instances at like the, you know, grade school or elementary school, middle school newspaper. And I had none of that experience. I like, I mean, literally my first internship on my first day was the Dayton daily news state house bureau in Columbus. And I get assigned a story about whatever bill and I have to call like the longtime state Senator from the Dayton area. I call him and I say, you know, like, so what's this, what's, what's your bill about? And it's something like that, probably far stupider even. And he's his first, his reaction is, Son, how long you been in this business? 
And I say, one day, sir. <laughs> right. And like, so, I mean, it, it took me a lot of stops and starts and like um, second chances from people and bosses and news, you know, to get, to try to get things right. And like things I'm still like working on even now. I like to, uh, I like to find old articles by people. And I do have this from the oh, October 5th, 1999 Dayton daily news rally promotes healthy pregnancies. Oh, boy. State legislators Monday kicked off a week-long campaign to reduce preventable birth defects, uh, which affect the development of a baby's spine and brain. About 100 preschool youngsters joined a trio of lawmakers at a statehouse press conference as they launched Healthy Women, Healthy Babies Week. I have always liked the word youngsters, so that yeah. sounds like me. That I have no recollection, obviously, of that story, but um, and I'm sure any of the complete sentences in that story are written by, you know, an editor. But um, yeah, I mean, that's what it was, you know. So, so wait, you mentioned that um, a lot of the old timers would say, run away from newspapers. Don't go to newspapers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, um, I've definitely, I, I teach out here at a university, just adjunct. And I have guests in, and sometimes I cringe because I'll, I'll ask the guests to give advice and they'll say, don't enter this field. And it sort of yeah. hurts my heart. It hurts my heart when people yeah. say that because I've loved this field. And I wonder, looking back now, how do you feel about those people who are telling you not to, were they wrong yeah. or are they misguided or neither? Yeah. It's a good question. And I would be irritated too. Like don't come to talk about like career day or whatever. <laughs> like if you're going to like, yeah, with, with that, I mean, um, no, but there is a good, I mean, there is a way to do that too. And an appropriate way to do that. Like you do need to, you know, you can only do journalism now and then and whatever, you know, now and 20 years ago and 40 years ago, whatever, if you love it. Right. Like it, there's I'm very I feel very, very lucky that I've been able to support a family with with, you know, as, as a two, even, you know, as a two income family um, in this business. Right. Like it's not it's, there's no there's no guarantee. It's not an automatic thing like you. Um, but you can't do it for you can't go in to do it for the money. Right. Like you need to earn a living, but um, and you can't be taken advantage of. But like you need. You need to love it because if you do it for the money, like it's this job is not worth it. Um, you know, w w like those folks back, like those old timers back then, I mean, on one hand it's sort of like I was whatever, 19, 20, 21. And like anyone over the age of 40 was ancient. And like, I was still not really ready to listen to anything. They, any advice, it was always, all their advice was coming with a grain of salt. Um, I mean, even now looking back, I think like it was a lot of it was like, um, you know, there is like, there's so many characters in this business. I mean, you have to be to a certain extent to, to want to be, to participate in this. Um, and I feel like a lot of it was just like the, you know, the old cranks who were, you know, um, with like, there's like sort of tough outer shells and, you know, um, like there was a sort of like, not quite get off my lawn, but like, things aren't what they used to be. And that was true. I mean, they, things, even now things aren't what they used to be. I mean, I, like I've, there's a million things I feel lucky about in my career. And one of which is, was the way I came up, which was um, starting at a community newspaper in Grand Junction. I went from there to Palm, the Palm Beach Post, which, you know, uh, I don't even know what, I can't even remember what the circulation there was. Like maybe, maybe a hundred thousand, like a 30,000 paper to a hundred thousand paper. And then to the St. Pete Times, um, Tampa Bay Times, which is, you know, one of the biggest in the country, um, and eventually to the Wall Street Journal in Washington. 
And like, it was invaluable for me, like to be able to learn the ropes at a community paper and to uh, write about people in the community, even from like, um, whether it was like county commissioners or people who had been in families that had been involved in an accident or whatever, a crime or a feature, like you were going to see these people like walking around the neighborhood at the grocery store, at the restaurant, right? Like you're going to have to face these people the next day instead of, you know, see like a hot take on the internet to like, you know, rip off on, on, uh, you know, on a website um, and not really have any consequences. Right. So like, it's still like, that was really formative for me in how to approach journalism and, and, and bulletproof things and make sure things were being fair. And that I was thinking about things of how would this, you know, how does this sound from, you know, read out loud, right? Like not just by me, but like the people involved, is this, is this fair? Right. I mean, it, you can be tough, but you need to be fair. Um, and I don't know that I would, it was in, like, I wouldn't have changed a thing on that in, in the places I got, you know, in that sort of path, there's a million things I would have done differently mm-hmm. on, on my end. But um, I, I don't know if you're, if there was a kid coming out of Ohio state now uh, that I could, you know, really recommend doing that. I just, it's, feels like there's the, the the divide is so much bigger now between like a grand junction sentinel and a wall street journal. And it was then too, but it's hard for me to see the path forward. Um, trying to start at a community paper and do good work that'll get noticed by the next sort of um, step up the ladder, you know, it's really interesting. So I, I, I started the national Tennessee in 1994 out of college. I was there for two and a half years I went to Sports Illustrated and sort of it, it almost felt like a natural funnel, right? You started a paper like you started a smaller paper than the Tennessean, but then you go smaller, a little bigger, a little bigger, and you kind right. of go off. I'm sort of with you. I don't know if that path. Yeah, exists. And it yeah. seems like bigger places hire people younger because there's not really a feeder system to mold people to get to that place. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like the same thing. Like, I also should say, like, I never it was never really my goal to get to Washington. Mm-hmm. Like, I liked writing politics, but kind of like. Because there was a lot of. Those kind of people stories and relationship stories in politics and politics were. Had a good chance of getting on the front page, which is kind of what attracted me to it. And. Um, and. Um, you know, I just I, again, like you sort of like get noticed. Right. And like someone said, you know, in relationships you build and at the next level up, but like my point being here, like, I don't know how much we're looking for people from the Cincinnati Inquirer, right? right? Like uh, the Palm Beach Post or whatever, the Atlanta Journal Constitution, like, you know, papers that even a decade ago, certainly 20 years ago, were um, forces to be reckoned with. Right. I mean, Pulitzer Prize contenders. I don't even know that. Like, I, I feel like if, most of the recruiters in Washington for big media companies now, you know, the, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the New York Times are looking at, you know, um, whatever, like blogs or sort of like, you know, um, uh, aggregators, extended, you know, like, and I, and I don't say that as a pejorative, I just, um, it's, it's, uh, I, I don't know, it'd be interesting to see like what, I don't know. I feel like that's where we're kind of hiring people more from than, than like, you know, the Kansas city star anymore. Yeah. Um, when I started in Nashville, they would say the Tennessean is a feeder paper for the New York times. Like that was a thing. I don't think that phrase even, I don't think there is a feeder paper anymore. Yeah. Anyway, 
Maybe I'm wrong. I feel like the New York Times feeds the Washington Post, the Washington Post feeds the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal feeds it like, mm-hmm. like this. Well, that is one thing I would say of like one like part of my career path that I would still recommend is if like you have any interest in politics, like state capitals for me was a, and I think mostly still are great places to be for reporters because they're still I mean, they're not what they used to be, but there still are multiple papers. Right. And like one reason I got hired by the same the Tampa Bay Times from the Palm Beach Post was that I was beating their their team on things we were competing on. Right. And their editors noticed and, you know, and then hired me instead of like competing. Right. So like that was true in in Denver. That was true in Tallahassee. Uh, you know, uh, I was interned in Ohio, but like I saw that happening in Ohio and and like the dynamic you're talking about in Washington is the same thing now, too, is um you know, competition is like, can be a good thing. Yeah. Right. right. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey. And uh, we've got kind of a problem. Afghanistan? What? No. You're going off to college and we need to find your replacement as the ad chick for Royal Retros. How hard can it be? All someone has to say is royalretros.com is a great spot for all your throwback needs. And throw in a few USFL references that only you and six other people even understand. Plus, does anyone even listen to this podcast? Like millions of people. It's weird, because I've never had one person comment on my ads. You know what? You're fired. I quit. Um, I'm interested in something. You, um, When you're me, and you're a sports journalist, and you're watching uh, Donald Trump refer to fake news over and over again, and you see... Uh, media members at the rally being mocked and threatened and blah, 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 blah. Watching from home, it infuriated me, right? It just infuriated me. These are my peers. These are people in the field, this blah, blah, blah. When you're in it um, and he's calling you fake news and everyone's Mm -hmm. calling you fake news, do you take it personally or do you see it more as shtick? Um, I mean, it's kind of both. Um, And like, there's also... I mean, I take it seriously in the sense of um, it, it, it comes from, it's, it's part shtick, right? Like it's part of his, uh, you know, the media has always been a good punching bag, bag for politicians, Republicans, Democrats, and both sides do it. Um, not quite to the level that Trump did, but um, it was partly to, you know, to have an enemy, like a, like a sort of shared enemy but also there was a very clear attempt to undermine the credibility of the media in, in order to um, blunt his own, like feeling that, that that could help blunt criticism of, of him. Right. Um, and that's serious, you know, and um, you know, and if I was, you know, and, and, you know, goes to sort of your goes to credibility, I think, um, you know, if you, and, and, and like there were moments in plenty of Trump rallies in 2016 and, you know, it did get a little, it get, did get pretty hairy during in, in those first few years of the white house. But I went to rallies, like sort of like looking for like, all right, where's the exits, where's the secret service, you know um, if, you know, if they come over, if, if, you know, if the uh, press pen gets stormed here, like what's the way out. Um and um, and I did have sort of like similar similar experience covering when I was working in Florida and during the 2008 election and the Sarah Palin rallies. That was actually the first time where I felt like um, like 
that people were coming to that rally like specifically pissed at me and right like or not you know not me but like i was like you know we were getting um you know shouted at and heckled and i mean directly right like face to face from people on the other side of those you know barricades um uh and so i mean i felt like a little familiar with it i'm saying it's not like totally unique to trump but he definitely amplified it in a way that we haven't seen um certainly in my lifetime the weird thing about so i wrote a book about the um you might not know. You say you're a sports guy. Look, there mm-hmm. used to be a league called the United States Football League, the USFL. Oh, yeah. yeah, definitely. Some yeah. great Browns in the 1980s come, came from the USFL. Yep. Kevin Mack. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I wrote a book about the USFL a couple of years ago. And okay. Donald Trump loved the media. Like, loved the media. Loved the media. And would made up a... He started in the, in the USFL is where John Barron started, where he would make up the name John Barron and call the local places and say blah, blah, blah. Um, I still feel like he loves the media. Am I, is that, is that dumb? Is that, does that go? No, flat? you're hundred It's hundred percent true. I mean, he brought me down twice for interviews. I mean, Grant, like he, we, we have like a better relationship than most, I think. And he loves the wall, you know, the wall, he likes the wall street journal more than most. Mm-hmm. So those things, but like he brought me down twice. Um, he brought, you know, there's a dozen of us that he's, you know, and he's, uh, including reporters that he specifically criticized, not just broadly the media, right. But like specific people that he felt wronged by. Right. I mean, um, but for Trump, yeah, you're, you're hundred percent right for Trump. Um, it's better to be talked about and criticized than to be viewed as boring and ignored, you know? Right. Wait, so I'm, I, I mean, I just want to say, I should have said this earlier. I freaking love this book. Like, Thank you. Uh, it is so ridiculously good. Thank you, Thank you so it, much. You do something that I, I don't think I've ever seen before. I mean, I guess I have, but like to this degree where I am equally equal parts horrified and entertained. Um, it's like it's the most entertaining horror book of all time. It just is. It's a wonderful book. It really is a wonderful book. And Thank um, you so much. I was interested. It's like. It would be very easy to write a book. Where you just walk away loathing Trump. And that's how you just walk away loathing Trump. And you think this guy's a nightmare. And a, yeah. some, I don't, I don't actually know how, I don't know if this was a conscious decision. Somehow you pulled off being fascinated by him, being horrified by him, but also in a weird at moments feeling oddly sort of, uh, I don't know if empathetic is the right word, but sort of almost like you want to embrace the guy at moments. Yeah. Um, are you thinking about any of this when you're working on the book? No, a hundred percent. Yeah, definitely. Like, let me start with like first like step back is um, like in five years at the Wall Street Journal, I've written 1100 stories about Donald Trump. Like I don't want to read, like I've read it all, right? Like I know it all. Like I don't want to like add to that pile. Right. Um, so I went into the book kind of, I mean, it was before 20, before we knew like the dumpster fire that 2020 was going to be um, trying to think about ways to make this give people a reason to turn the page. Right. And, um, you know, one part of that was, uh, some of the relationships I had developed with people who go to these rallies, um, and try to talk, talk to them about humans. But, um, I did want to make it, I wanted to make it a good read. I wanted to make it, you know, you said entertaining, like I, like, I think the book is fun, which like is hard for me to describe that way in a book about 2020. Right. Um, but I wanted people, I wanted people like one of the things I thought I could give readers was 
a, a sort of view of what it was like from like covering the guy and being part of this. And I mean, I did have like extraordinary access and unusual, um, you know, as, as in like my place in my seat on Air Force One, right? And like wanted to give people the sense of like what that was like to cover this guy and be part of this, you know, crazy era and in, in, in American history. Um, and and I go back to the early thing, like I, I do this because I love it, right? And because I think it is fun. And like that is it's it's hard and it's a grind and it's and and it's you know um you know uh in just insanity at some sometimes but at the end of the day like I, I still have fun like I, I covering Trump was like nothing like I've ever done and probably ever will do. Um so I wanted definitely to give people that sense of it. But um like I'm not I'm also not political. Like I just it sounds like an easy answer for a journalist and like a cliche, but I mean, uh, we got the plane dealer delivered every day at the end of my driveway in, in, Cle- in suburban Cleveland. And, you know, it was a it was a battle between me and my dad every morning over the sports page, not the front page. Right. And like I talked to my mom about the storylines in the comics, not in like the metro section. Like there wasn't. Um, so, you know, I'm more interested in like who these are, who these people, who these people are and not necessarily like chalking up wins and losses for Democrats. So I think that kind of helps me, you know, uh, convey what I wanted to do is like tell the story about like the decisions these folks made, but also describe them as humans and what, you know, can some context of what went into those decisions, even when it comes to Donald Trump, like he is, he is a human, right. And like love him or hate him, you know, he got, you know, 75 million people to vote for him. Like there's something and not, and for not one single reason, like, a, you know, a million different reasons. Um, so I wanted to give people like sort of the sense of like what I like have learned about him and know about him and the people around him and um, and tried to tell sort of like the, the, the human drama as much as like, you know, the, um, you know, the, 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 the seriousness and the, and, and, you know, the policy issues that we were facing in 2020. Do you think you can do your job and be um, strongly hardcore political with a sort of lean in your beliefs? Is it still feasible? I mean, not for me personally. I just like I, I, um, I mean, it's a different. It's like a sort of weird thing. Like I, I feel like I have strong beliefs and convictions, but like not necessarily on like what tax policy should be, uh-huh. right? Or, um, you know, like I understand like the nuance of the abortion debate you know, um, and I, I feel like I do. Um, and, you know, I mean, these are so, but no, I don't think you can be like an activist and do this particular job. Right. Um, although, I mean, Christ, who knows it anymore, right? Like if you, like the, I tell a story about the, the Hunter Biden stuff in this book about um, Trump's people come to me and they want me to like look at the Hunter Biden, Tony Bobolinsky stuff for the first time. Um, and, you know, they think, right. They think Joe Biden is complicit and a crook and, you know, uh, getting uh, money from Hunter's dealings, who's like selling his father's influence. And none of that is uh, evidence of any, it's clear in any of the evidence they give me, any of the paperwork, any of the documents is, you know, it's all kind of conjecture. But like the Hunter Biden dealings in China is a fascinating story. And like particularly for the Wall Street Journal, it's this kind of wild under the hood look at, you know, international business dealing with like two ambitious, well-connected young men in the world's two biggest 
economic superpowers. And it's fascinating. Right. And like I tell him, like, that's an interesting story. I can pitch that story. But if you want a story, if you're looking for me to tell you that Joe Biden is, you know, guilty of siphoning money off his son's, you know, um, yeah, um, family dealing, like that's not here. And what they tell me is no, no, no. We want, if you think there's a story here, do it. Like we, what had happened was all the Hunter Biden stuff had become like this sort of only talked about in the sphere, like this conservative media sphere. And it had be just become this pure conspiracy theory by everybody else. And no one would touch it because of that. So their thinking was like, if there was some mainstream uh, media company that said there was something here worth looking at, or this is a story worth telling in some way, then, you know, what their motivation was, was then like that would give them at least a foot in the door to try to get some of this other stuff in. Right. Which was, and I say all that is a way to like, it was fascinating to me that if you want a rigorously edited down the middle, straight, just the facts news reporting, like there is, a, 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 there's very few places to go anymore with that. Very. Funny. Right. I mean, um, which is kind of sad. Oh yeah. I always just say, Back when I was growing up, we're relatively the same age back when you were growing up, like um, mm-hmm. you would turn on the TV news and you'd watch whatever Peter Jennings, Tom Brokaw, Dan Rather, whoever. And they would tell you what the news was. And then it was your job to process that in your head and decide what you thought about it. And now you turn on almost any cable news, certainly. Yeah. And they're telling you what you need to think about the news. They're not just telling you what the news is. They're actually telling you how you should think about that news. Yeah. That's a huge shift. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the thing is that everyone kind of complains about the bias of the media, right or left. But like, it's only that way because that's what consumers are are buying, right? Like, that's what they're interested in. That's what they're turning on. That's what they're paying for. Um, so, it like, sort of this like continuous loop. And, and and until you know, there's a shift in you know consumer taste that they want something more. Like we can like agreed upon set of facts or close to it. Then you know, it's not going to happen. Wait, this might be a weird question, but you said um, at one point you said, you know, you get a call from the White House or people affiliated with the White House. They think Biden is Joe Biden is complicit in a crook. And I wonder, like, um, in your job, you're always going to get this side saying this about that side and this side saying that about that side. If they if someone is always telling you the negatives about the other side, which is mm-hmm. how it works, mm-hmm. do you have to ask themselves yourself, do they even think this? Like, I know they're saying it. Or do yeah. they actually even think this is true or are they just throwing everything they can against the wall and see what sticks? Yeah. I mean, I do in a certain way, right? Like that um, it, it, most people like that's going to be their job one way or the other, right. To like be spinning one way or the other. It's, it goes back to sort of credibility and again, kind of relationships that like one of the reasons I, I not just take the call, but like go out, you know, to the other side of town and sit down with these folks was that there were people in the room that to me were credible. And we're not just always throwing shit at the wall. Like, I don't have time for that. You know, like bring me stuff that it has a, you know, has a chance of getting in the, in the wall street journal. Not that like, I mean, who has time to just like, you know, uh, go down rabbit holes and, and, you know, um, and waste a bunch of time that, that, you know, but like, it's always one thing, like a couple of things. One is it's always better to talk to people than not. Right. Like that's, but for me to get like, go and, and spend a night and like several hours. Like there were people in the room that I, that I thought were credible and still think are credible. Um, 
And that, you know, that just is like, so I do kind of, you know, consider sources and they're and differently and the, and what they're bringing me based on like past performance. Right. If there's someone that is at least thoughtful, right. And not just like, I, I understand spin, but like there's a difference between like spin and just bullshit. Right. Um, so I try to like keep as much bullshit on my life as I can. Mike Lindell calls and he leaves you a message. Are you like, yeah, I think I'll, I think I'll pass on that one. Well, that's a different case because like he probably is calling me right after he talked to Trump. So I do want to hear what, you know, yeah, fair point. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot of like, yeah, choices I didn't, you know, or things I didn't have to think about ever before, you know, yeah. before covering Trump, you it's know, really fascinating. yeah. I mean, there's like, there's not, there, Trump came out of this kind of tabloid culture in New York. Right. I mean, he thrived, like that's where his, I mean, you know, like his, that's where it, like, and that kind of, if you understand that, then you can kind of understand where, where this is all coming from, like this need to um, be part of the next, he- win this headline and like worry about tomorrow, tomorrow and, you know, forget long-term planning because we got to win like, you know, this moment right now. Like that's all like, you know, uh, like let's kill this good, this story about us by giving them a, this story about them. Um, like that happens like that's how just like the whole Trump world works in New York and, the, you know, in the business, in the White House, in, you know, Mar-a-Lago. Um, you know, I, like I just never covered any place where, you know, six people go into a meeting and, you know, eight versions of that meeting come out of it. Um, like I've never really, you know, like you just, you just have to keep talking to people Um and to get like the full picture of what happened. Does it, does it sometimes come down to you having to decide who is the most trustworthy person in that room? Like you get eight people coming out with six different stories or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Is it then up to you as a reporter to say, well, this, this guy's crazy. This guy's erratic. This guy's blah, but this guy always tells the truth. Yeah. It's like, some of it's like kind of like police, police work, right? Like you go back and you ask the same sort of, it depends on how big it is, like how important it is and like how, these the details but like i've done interviews particularly for this book where i've gone back to people like with the same questions multiple times and like tell me this again like how did that like is that where you know uh is that where they were sitting how do you know like a lot of that stuff um uh lends like you get a better sense of like the credibility there right and there's nothing certainly nothing in the journal and nothing in this book that is you know just like is single source is purely single sourced or was like a he said, she said, and I just sort of chose one of them. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's, it's like, to answer your question. Yes. Like you do, you have to make decisions about what this story is. Um, but it wasn't just like, there a lot goes into that. And sometimes, you know, um, some of the best advice I got working on this book was um, like, there's instances where you can't, like where it's hard to know. Right. And sometimes, and like, in those cases, sometimes that's the story, not whether or not Trump tested positive the morning, uh, you know, he went to Bed- Bedminster for a fundraiser or after the fundraiser. Um, but like the fact that there's so much disagreement among credible people in the White House over that issue is 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 telling right. in its own way. Right. You know? Right. Yeah, that's well said, actually. Sometimes you can just let a story be a story and not have to find a conclusion of that story. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, well, it's interesting. So I, I mentioned to you before we started, I'm writing a book about Bo Jackson. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I can interview a hundred of his teammates at Auburn and they're happy to talk because there's no reason not to talk because they're glowing stories about Bo Jackson and blah, blah, blah. And even if they're not glowing, it was 40 years ago and it's great. Yeah. yeah. I'm fascinated, like, again, not as a political reporter, all these people you get to open up. I don't actually get what, what's in it for them. Yeah. Like, what is it? Is it legacy? Is it ego? Like, what? what is it? Why? Yeah, some like a little bit of both. Right. I mean, there was um, I, mean, I started pitching people on participating on this book. Um, like t- end of 2019, early 2020, like before uh, COVID, for sure. And I mean, it's hard to remember, but like when Trump was impeached the first time, like it was kind of it was like basically the high watermark for him politically. He'd not just he'd been acquitted and survived, but like he was actually thriving. I mean, the American people blamed the Democrats for wasting time on impeachment. It was a, a boondoggle for his fundraising machine. Um, like there was a clear path to, you know, the economy was red hot. You know, early Feb, mid February of 2020, like there was a very clear, you know, road to 2020 or to, to, to reelection, and I think people. Um, wanted to be a part of that story, right? Like a, a how he won story in a lot of ways would be, have been way more interesting than how he lost. Right. And so sure. Like, I think some of that was like people wanting to be able to take credit for it or be, have their, and, but, but maybe even like less judgmental have their, I mean, they want their sides of the story told. Right. And, um, and some of it is history, right. I mean, there is legacy, like legacy sort of history in the making here. And, um, you know, it is easier to talk, like you're saying, not just 40 years later, but four months later, right? If it's not part of the, you know, um, that's what makes newspaper reporting so difficult is, is we're trying, and particularly in politics and government, like we're trying to report on what's being decided at that moment. And it's hard to have that conversation in public for a lot of these officials, um, and still control it, right? So it's easier to talk about later um, in hindsight than um, and be a part of it, the story then. And, you know, I do, like I did, I did talk to people about that, that this was a, it's a, a, an opportunity to tell their sides of the story, um, you know, for history and, you know, to be part of, uh, uh, of something, of a bigger narrative and, and not just, a, you know, a, a, a one-off story for the paper that day. Do you ever... Um... <laughs> You ever come to the conclusion in covering politics that people are just really gullible and susceptible and that so we're just not or yeah i well i just think well, like yeah, i mean yeah I, so i mean i worry about that like for me like i worry about like how um right like you know i'm being you know manipulated all the time and if i'm being manipulated and like in ways i don't realize i'm um, I don't know. Again, like it's easier. I, it's, I mean, again, from coming from like a pretty non-political upbringing, like it's, I'm a little bit, I'm pretty sympathetic to, um, what people are dealing with, like in their daily lives. Like, I don't know that, um, yes, like these are big decisions and voting is a, is, is a huge, you know, important thing, but, um, I think people are just mostly like, it's, it's, it's not the biggest priority in their lives. Right. Like it's like, there's not maybe, maybe more so recently, but 
you know, most of my lifetime, there was not a just sort of like life or death, right. you know, like the world, it was just sort of, you know, there was a sense that uh, it was kind of like the next old white guy up. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't like um, people were not tuned ever fucking turning into white house daily uh, news briefings. Right. Like there was not that sort of sense of urgency um, that would require you to, you know, to take the time to know exactly who the candidates are, where they stand other than like, you know, I think what we were at, it's sort of like the, the, whatever, nearing the quarter mark of the 21st century is like people kind of have their, you know, issues they voted on and sort of generally know where those candidates are, whether it's guns or abortion or like, who the first lady will be or right. I mean, and, and go from there and just like, all right, like now how am I, who's picking up my kid from school today? And, right. you know, so do you feel like that's changed? Do you feel like we're not there anymore? Do you feel like now it really has become do you, in your job? No, I don't think we're quite, no, I mean, I think it has to be like, um, like the sort of like existential feeling of like the country in on the, you know, on the verge of peril for that to be, or, you know, um, like a, almost like a wartime situation. Um, like there, there was a much more, there are two things. Like one is like, we, I think we've becoming, and you can find data to this effect that people are becoming more and more interested, have be, been becoming more and more interested in politics and, and political process and processes for decades, right? That like by their media consumption and, um, you know, and, uh, shows that i mean trump jacked it way up um but it's still on an upward like it's still like like that trajectory is still there i mean other than like this quick trump blip um so i, I yes i think we were becoming more and more engaged but i don't feel like it's for most americans it feels like um you know um like they have to pay attention to everything happening in washington every single day isn't that one of the risks of your job is that, or one of the things that comes with your job or people in your job sometimes is you, uh, you can be fooled into thinking that more people care about this stuff than actually do. Yeah. I mean, it's just sort of like, um, yeah, like in, you're in the bubble, right. And like everything is happening around you and it always, it feels way more important than, um, than it really is. You know, I mean, I, I, I remember experiencing that, um, pretty early on like in the state legislature and like this, you know, it feels like this major drama over like this vote of, or like, a, you know, a procedural vote on the bill and, you know, someone like lied to someone else and like the vote goes through or doesn't go through and like calling the editor frantic about like, you wouldn't believe what this guy just did. And they're like, well, like, so what, right? I mean, is the bill failed or passed? Oh, right. neither, right? Like fuck off and go, you know, bring, you know, come back when they do something. That's funny. So I remember when I was uh, I was covering baseball for Sports Illustrated and my mom had no idea who Barry Bonds was. And I was covering Barry Bonds and she didn't know who he was. And I was just horrified and dumbfounded that she did not know who Barry Bonds was. And I probably haven't watched more than two major league baseball games in a year for like 10 years. And I could not tell you who leads baseball and home runs right now. You know, like when you're in it, it just becomes this absorption. And as soon as you yeah. leave, like, oh, I, yeah, I guess so. I don't know. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, I mean, I was very conscious of that writing the book too. I mean, I wanted to write something that was accessible to people in my family, like the same, same sort of thing. Like, um, you know, that like most of my family, like again, like my sort of close 
in a, you know, my sort of nuclear family, like is not following politics every day. Like just not interested in it and like interested in other things, but I wanted to write something where they felt like they could, you know, uh, read it and understand it and like want to read more and not feel like it was just like totally written for a beltway crowd and, and like inside the, you know, the people in the bubble and you know, make, making a bigger deal of things than they were, or like, um, you know, or turned off by like, sort of easy caricatures of villains and, you know, good guys and bad guys and stuff like that. Yeah. I just want to tell you that my favorite part of the book was something I actually read this morning and I'm going to be the only person who says this, but this is super nerdy. Okay. You wrote in the acknowledgements. I've never Mm -hmm. attempted anything remotely approaching the scale of this project and it unfolded amid circumstances. I wouldn't have believed even if Bill S. Preston Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan would have snatched me from the streets of Washington in the summer of 2019 when I first considered writing this book and brought me in their uh, time traveling telephone booth to the horrors that lay ahead in 2020. The pandemic wrecked havoc on all our daily lives and routines. And I repeatedly considered abandoning this project in the face of the unexpected upheaval and chaos. Instead, I pushed ahead. I thought about writing a book at different points in my career, and it seemed improbable that it would ever happen if I didn't try after five years of covering Trump, who had been the most fascinating political story of my lifetime. But I've struggled to come to terms with the fallout from my choice. I'm so sorry that during this already troubled time, I've been the source of additional stress to the humans I love most. Not a day passed that I wasn't filled with with some uh, combination of overwhelming guilt and humbling appreciation that my family believed in me enough to assume many of my responsibilities and help ease some of my burden at a time when they're already shouldering too much of their, uh, of their own. I hope my family enjoyed these pages. This book exists because of them. Uh, and it's for them that every word here was written. And so I've written nine books. I don't think I've ever stated as well what it is to write a book and the conflicting emotions. I almost get emotional reading. I swear to God. And like, you feel like, especially your kids are younger than mine, like missing out on little moments. And it's a Saturday, it's a beautiful Saturday outside and your kids are playing in the park and it fucking rips the shit out of you. It really does. And I just thought, do you feel like you you come out the other side? Are you unscathed? Or did this kind of beat you with a hammer from the inside? Yeah, I mean, much more so the latter. I mean, it's it's like, um, you know, you, it's, I, I thought I knew what to expect and like how hard it could be. And like, I had no idea, right. It, it, it is like, there's no way to sort of overstate the sort of singular uh, kind of lonely experience experience. This is like, it was me versus a computer screen for hours, you know, in an office. Um, and, you know, you'll enjoy this. I was, my wife actually found me, uh, we subletted, I subletted a, an, a, 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 ther- a family therapist's office. Um, just down the street. Like she wasn't able to see clients in person because of COVID. So she was looking for someone to like eat some of the rent. And so I literally finished this book from inside a therapist's office, which was, you know, not intentional, but also, you know, um, pretty apt for the experience. Um, and so, yeah, so there's always, like, I think that's going to be always the case, right? Like it was, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to do um, and to take on and um, uh, to sort of wrestle with and, you know, um, uh, and to try to do it for the first time, like during a pandemic, again, when like everybody's routines got turned upside down. Right. I mean, everybody's stress levels went uh, up because as a result of just like of that, of like all the change that was happening in the moment. And, um, you know, uh, 
you know, and, and again, just like what you said, like I was and here, I come like asking them to do more. Um, so it wasn't like, it wasn't unscathed. Like I, like that takes its toll, you know, on those relationships. I mean, I'm going to come out the other end, I think, you know, but like that takes, that takes time. I mean, it's, it's, you know, um, I have like a lot of debt to pay off at this point, you know, with, with those, in those relationships. And I'm, uh, I'm confident I can do it. And I'm like working really hard to do that with like, um, you know, the softball games I missed for my daughter to like all of the weekends I asked my wife to cover to like, um, you know, my sisters who um, like I barely checked in with at all other than to like ask them for things, you know? So, um, you know, but I, I, I you know, I, I do like it. I, I think it'll get there. I'm pretty confident. Wait, dumb actual question. The book came out month-ish ago, right? Month and a half-ish? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, mid-July. Yeah. Was it worth it? I mean, it's a good question. I um, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer yet. I don't. I mean, like people ask me, like, are you going to write another book? Like, what I can say is, like, I'll never write another book during a pandemic. I can tell you that. Yeah. Um, and... The, like the, the book has had a really nice reception. I mean, it's been better than I, I had hoped for. And, and that's helped. I mean, in the sense that like my family is um, and sharing in that success, you know, and feels um, invested in that, in the project. And um, like one of my sisters told me that when it came out, even like in the middle of all like the publicity that it felt like a baby had been, another baby had been born into the family, you know? Um, and I've always like I don't I don't want to sound like I've always felt like supported by my family and lucky to have like a very big support system in that way. But what I was like the response and the excitement was overwhelming to me. Like their um, their reaction to it was just and how excited they were was just um, it felt good to me. But also in the sense that like it made me think that like they thought maybe it was worth it for them or at least a little bit worth it for them, um, which is you know eases the burden a little bit for me. I'm sort of like you. I've written uh, thousands and thousands of articles, but my mother never gets as excited as if I tell her I'm going to be on TV. Oh so. my God. I know I was on, I, was, I mean, I was in journalism for like 15 years and then like the, my first TV hit was on Bloomberg TV, which like most people don't even know what channel that is on their TV set. But that was the moment where they were, everyone was like, yeah, like he's actually like doing this. Like he's going to, you know, like I've been worked at five papers, people like I've been, you know, doing this for 15 years. Like it's, Anyway, but yeah, same thing. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a crazy, uh, uh, it's a crazy medium and people's reaction to it. It does, it does feel just bigger than everything else. I agree. Uh, let me ask you a final question. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a question that you've been asked 73,000 times. Okay? okay. I apologize for that. Okay. Do you think Donald Trump will run again? Um, I mean, I would guess, I guess I would say it's kind of probably, I mean, my, my own, my only hesitancy is like, yeah, he wants to be part of the story, right? He wants to be um, viewed as a kingmaker. He wants to be, uh, you know, validated in a way that another being reelected um, would do. But I think 2022 is going to be super important here. Um, um, you know, I mean, this is the Republican Party's opportunity to redefine itself post-Trump. You know, how they, whether they want to, how they want to, what that means, like, I don't know, but it's good. That would be, that's going to be informative, I think, and whether Trump thinks he has any shot to win, um, which I think is going to be important for him to run. 
that for him to decide to run, ultimately, he's going to have to think he can win. Um, and, you know, he's made two dozen endorsements. You know, I mean, he's endorsing Republican challengers in Republican primaries. And I know a lot of things have changed in politics, but like I'm still of the belief that it's difficult to beat an incumbent. And no matter how popular a former president is in the party, in you have his endorsement, right? Like it's it's hard to do. Um, and if he loses those, you know, like what does that mean? And um, you know, some of these other competitive primaries where he's not weighed in, and some of these different Republicans have a sort of their own opportunity to to to, to make their own arguments to voters. Um, like what's going to work, and it is what. Trump is talking about going to be part of what works, you know, like, I think I, I think all of that will be informative to what he does ultimately. And that's kind of like the best sort of like insider view of like what I can, how I can answer your question, like short of like a yes or no, but. Do you, do you think he believes, do you think he, do you think somewhere deep down he knows he lost or do you think hundred percent? No, he's convinced he won that election. No, I think there is part, like there is part of him that thinks he lost, but like there's also part of him that thinks he won. I mean, I've been asked that question a lot too. And it's also a question like I've asked um, people around Trump, a quote, you know, that, that talk to him on a regular basis and they don't know, right? It kind of depends, like the sort of answer sort of depends on what they catch him. And in one conversation, it could be, you know, acknowledgement of like things that didn't go the right way. And another conversation, it's, it's about conspiracy theories in, in the Arizona elections still. So, Right. Um, I think it's, um, I think the answer is like kind of both. Like he, he's, um, and yeah, which is an un- unsatisfying answer. I know. No, that's fair. Um, well, let me say again, seriously, book is great. Thank uh, you so much. I'm happy to see how well it's done. It's very worthy. Thank you very much. It sounds stupid. The cover is awesome. The title is awesome. The font Thank is you. awesome. It's a beautiful book. Um, Thank you, you so much. You it yourself. You did a great job. It was so, it was, it was so much fun. Like, doing that they're doing the going through the process with the cover and stuff and i, I yeah i'm really proud of how that the whole that whole package came out so i'm glad you liked it and um um as someone who's been through this process a number of times i like it really means a lot that that to me to hear that you liked it and um uh thank you i really appreciate that yeah so thanks for doing the show i appreciate it i want to thank today's guest michael c bender for joining me on two riders slinging yang you can follow mike on twitter at michael c bender Read his work in the Wall Street Journal and purchase Frankly, We Did Win This Election wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Slinging Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a nice review. I make no money for doing this, and I depend on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.